0: road the podcast series all about facing failure overcoming difficulties improving our research culture and so much more all set within the higher education and research environment if you're joining us for the first time then you're welcome to listen to these episodes in any order or pick and choose the ones that interest you but I do recommend listening to episode 1 which is a short introduction to this project first that episode outlines what we're trying to do here, how the project came about, why we use the language we use throughout the episodes and a few other technical bits such as funding and ethics as well. Although this podcast was made as part of my work as training coordinator for graduate students at the University of East Anglia, I'm not a professional sound engineer or radio host and all of my guests were volunteers recording from their own homes with the equipment they had to hand. Please bear with us if the episodes aren't always quite as polished as professional podcasts The message they convey is what's important here. Speaking of that, I hope you enjoyed today's episode and it gives you something to think about, either now or in the future, it inspires you to try something different, or it makes you feel less like the only person in the world when you face setbacks or difficulties in your work. If you have any feedback or comments about this episode, I'd love to hear from you. Contact details are in the show notes. Show notes have been created for this and every episode. They contain links to as many of the books, people, websites, or other resources mentioned by our interviewee, combined with some of my thoughts and notes. Show notes for every episode can be found at emmaelvidge.com forward slash podcast.
1: And it is so fabulous to fail in research and go oh I so got that wrong great now tell me what what am I supposed to do right how else should I be doing what else am I getting wrong I deliberately try to find my failures that's what you should be doing as a scientist is challenging yourself first and foremost your systems your culture your everything else but first and foremost yourself
0: that was Dr Catherine Dean. Senior lecturer in the School of Health Sciences at the University of East Anglia. Picking one quote to sum up my discussion with Catherine was nearly impossible. There is so much good content in this episode. As well as her academic role, Catherine is UEA's Access Ambassador and champions for a more inclusive, thoughtful, and kinder environment, both physical and social, both in research and beyond. Catherine openly discusses how developing a disability at the start of her career. Impacted her choices and opportunities, and how she has used it as a force for good, creating for herself a research career that is both personally fulfilling but also directly impactful to society. We discuss the danger of seeing being healthy as normal. We're all constantly on a spectrum of physical and mental healthiness, and this isn't a failure to be fixed. The importance of learning to say no and of understanding your own values, and how Catherine built a varied portfolio career rather than the somewhat traditional academic model of specialisation. Catherine is honest throughout the conversation. For example, she shares the times decisions were made with the mortgage in mind, and times when her research may look quick, but the process behind the scenes was much slower. A few housekeeping points before we get started. Firstly, this episode does touch on mental and physical health issues, including depression and anxiety. The show notes contain a few useful links if this leaves you wanting to talk to someone about this. Secondly, there is a smattering of adult language used in this episode, so take this as your fair warning. Thirdly, this is a long episode, but please keep listening or don't let that put you off from starting. If I'm completely honest, I did go into the editing process with the mindset to cut this episode down, but I just couldn't. The advice and stories Catherine shares are just brilliant right to the very end. Enjoy. Hi, Catherine, welcome to the podcast. Hi, yeah. Would you like to introduce yourself to the listeners, who you are, how you got to be where you are today, that sort of thing?
1: Okay, so I'm Catherine Dean. I'm a senior lecturer in healthcare research at the School of Health Sciences at the University of East Anglia. Um, I do research into the management of long term conditions. I do what I call the very boring stuff, the taking your pills right, remembering to do your exercise, the everyday management stuff, um, and to how to manage those anxiety gremlins. So it's the day-to-day, how do you manage having a long-term condition or disability? And that's the research I do. And then I'm also... Uh, personally I'm a wheelchair user I have a rather long list of various disabilities and diagnoses and stuff but basically my legs don't work so well and the fatigue gremlins often win Um, and so uh, yeah so I'm doing this podcast laid almost horizontal in my new so my new chair that I've got that literally allows me to lie down horizontally so that I can manage when my blood pressure goes for a random wander (laughs) and Mm. things like that. And as a result of the insight that I've gained from that, I've become the access ambassador to the university as well. A title I've taken on for myself and they haven't dared to take off me (laughs) because it describes what I do so well. I've basically, in the five years I've been doing this role, massively improved the accessibility of the campus and how we work as a university and it means that we've changed it from being a standard 1960s concrete jungle to being one of the most accessible campuses in the in the uk which is both brilliant and desperately sad in exactly the same moment it's brilliant that we are it's brilliant that we've managed to in in put in so much change so quickly so we've installed 200 powered doors Loads of lifts, loads of toilets, put in our first um changing place accessible toilet, which is a big one with a bench and a hoist and all that mm. sort of stuff. But really sad that we're about the 14th university in the country to have a changing place accessible toilet. Now, can you imagine having to have a, a, that level of need to have your pads changed and things like this? And your option being you have to roll all the way back to your halls of residence to get changed or be changed somehow in a standard size toilet, accessible toilet, probably on the floor. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, like I say, it's brilliant that we're doing so well. It's really sad that the standard that I'm talking about is so low. So um, we're, we're, I'm working on it. <laughs> As the states will very happily tell you, I'm a pain in the backside about accessibility.
0: <laughs> it's so important though, and it's something you don't, I mean, I'll quite freely admit I've been at UEA on and off since 2009. And um, last month I picked my little one up from nursery, and then I, I just was going to pop to meet someone on the other side of campus. And I just I kept messaging them, being like, I am coming because. I'm used to walking and there's so many steps mm-hmm. and and I was just thinking like I know this campus like the back of my hand and yet I still just keep it you know approaching somewhere and then oh I'm at the top of some steps shall I launch yeah. her off them.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah no that's it you have to know the routes um, I don't think we're ever going to get past that with a you know with an existing campus that was built like I say when it was built to engender a sense of community except of course People in wheelchairs weren't part of that community. We weren't even considered in the 1960s. So it's it's really challenging to to do that. But the roots are there. You just have to kind of know where they are. They're a bit secret. So we tend to try to make sure that our wheelchair using students get a bit of a a separate tour, so they get to talk. Like, everybody else goes down that set of stairs now. If you turn the exactly 180 degrees behind you, <laughs> there's a there's a ramp down around the corner over there, <laughs> hidden away.
0: <laughs> and I've seen some of the changes that you've been making in the past few years. So do you have your eyes set, like, nationally now? You were saying that the, <laughs> the scene is better at UEA, but are you are you hoping to be an ambassador more? more oh, yes. Broadly?
1: Oh, yes. Um. I am currently in discussions with UKRI, who are basically the gods of research. So they're the guys that oversee the MRC, the ASRC, and all of those funding councils. Um, they're relatively new in the governmental, non-governmental stratosphere, but they are basically the, the guys that are trying to oversee the, the research culture has a degree of consistency across it even if you're doing it in social science or history or biomedical or whatever that there's a consistency to it and I kind of challenge them because they have I do love mission statements I I I adore mission statements because I can usually go to them going yeah you say that and you do this doesn't match let shall I help you (laughs) And I've basically done that with them because they've got a mission statement of that they want research by everyone for everyone. And I'm going, you know what, that is a brilliant mission statement. I really, really think support it. So if you were to wander into a research lab doing a random audit and in that research lab, you saw a sign on the door and it said, no blacks, no gays, no women, that research lab would guaranteed lose its money in a heartbeat. And that's absolutely correct. It is completely unacceptable for that sort of bias to be that explicit. It's unacceptable for that bias to be implicit even, but that way we're working on those ones, Mm. those hidden ones, a little more hard. But for it to be right in your face you cannot come in this lab if you have these characteristics we would stop funding them in a heartbeat but i say well the sign's not on the door but it is actually implicit in the vast vast majority of research institutes and facilities in this country and it says no access and you keep funding them and you don't require them to change so I've given them a five-year plan and I've challenged them to be brave and I've said if we did this plan in five years time we would be at the start of the journey that would say you can only access funds from us if Your research facilities meet these minimum access standards. And we are explicit that those goalposts will continue to move as we improve the minimum standard we expect you to meet. Because currently, well into the high 90% of research facilities in this country have explicit barriers to access if you have one or other form of disability.
0: Yeah, I would agree. Having worked in many research labs. Mm. A- absolutely. Um, and you, did you used to be a, a lab scientist?
1: Yep, yep, that 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 yeah, that my, was my research starting point. Um, I was very lucky. I didn't get the grades to do medicine. God, thank God, <laughs> I would have been the worst medic in the world. Um, And so I did biology instead, and I did it at Bristol Poly, and I did a sandwich degree. So I went for a year to do research in the real world, and I was so lucky I got to do research in America, in North Carolina, with the very wonderful Professor Mark Manny, who put up with this completely eccentric, mad... English student who'd had a month's worth of training in immunology. And he's running an immunology lab. And he was trying to get it set up and trying to get things working. And eventually he just turned around to me and said, you know what, a few months ago, you know, a little while ago, I saw this really weird result. And I've never been able to explain it. And I've never been able to track it down. Go away and just try that. And... It was the very purest form of curiosity research. We saw a weird result, let's go see what that is. And I found a brand new B cell mitogen, so that, that's, that tells the B cells, the ones that produce antibodies in your system, go and replicate, multiply up and fight this infection or whatever. And I found one that tells them all to go do, do forth and replicate. It. So it's a really important you know part of the sequence of how do B cells do this how does your immune system work and I found that and so in less than a year as a novice undergraduate I got a research paper out wow. <laughs> which by the way is completely impossible it never ever happens it's a completely insane way of of get, get introduction into research science it's completely delusional um, but that's the point at which I got hooked in doing research. It was kind of, wow, you can do this. It's so cool. <laughs> and then I did my PhD and that was a bit more realistic and harder <laughs> work. But, you know, I, I, was, I was a lab rat. I was doing uh, immunology and looking at the immune system's responses to chlamydia and autoimmune diseases and all sorts of stuff. And then one day I started to shake. And I've never stopped shaking since. And so shaking in a lab is not a good idea. At the time, I was working with chemical, physical, biological, radiological and mouse hazards. So it really didn't work with shaking involuntarily, violently and without any warning. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I did a career change. And I was going for job after job after job interview, and thankfully, I was very lucky, and I hit again. Prof. Carl Clark at Birmingham University saw past the shape, saw I still had a brain, saw that I might be interested in this stuff, and so we did the first set of Cochrane reviews on allied health interventions. We did physiotherapy, occupational therapy, and speech therapy in Parkinson's, and we were the first ones to really do. A set of reviews on something a bit more complex than pill A versus pill B which is was up to that point really Cochrane's home territory they're now brilliant at doing complex interventions and evaluating them but we were one of the first in that field so that was good fun
0: (laughs) generally when I whenever you speak about something I you sound so positive but when you talk about that start to your career and it sounds like you just loved being in the lab and one topic that's come up in a couple of other interviews especially you know talking about failure which is our our broader topic has been that when things go wrong it's about um it going wrong or it failing but you not making you a failure or if you have to stop doing something that you are not what you do and so I wondered how it was to you did you have your identity bound up in being a lab scientist? Was it difficult to change?
1: Oh, God, yeah. No, I mean, you know, you, you've you done your PhD, you've done your first po I was doing finishing up my first postdoc. Um, yeah, you're very, your identity is very much bound up with that idea of, oh, this is what a research scientist looks like, is that you're in and you're doing long hours in the lab and you're working in the hoods and all of that sort of stuff. But the really cool thing was that I was able to then go, well, which of these skills can I still do, even if I'm shaking and stuff? And I think I was just incredibly lucky because, I mean, the the job interview was literally was my last job interview. If I didn't get that one, I was going to give up because I was running low on funds and everything. I was going to sell the house and I was going to move home with my parents and I was going to, you know, re what it is I'm doing and everything. But at that point, I was still doing the. No, I'm going to keep applying for research jobs. I keep going. I want to do research. I think I'm good at it. And thankfully, as a neurologist with a specialist interest in movement disorders, which is what I've got is a movement disorder, he could see past the shake. I was just so lucky. You know, it was that serendipity of things lining up. And he, I was willing to go systematic review. What the hell is that? Parkinson's disease. Uh, you shake a bit, don't you? Uh, don't know anything else about that. Okay, but look, it, it's a literature review. I can do literature reviews, I, I'll, I'll learn the rest. And it was a case of saying what I wanted to do was research and if I wasn't able to do the lab stuff and it was so obvious, I really wasn't able to do the lab stuff at the time that I could still do, you know, I knew, you know, there's such a wide range of things that you can do as a researcher that, you know, there is not one single cookie cutter version of what a researcher is. And I knew that. And so I just went along going, please, can you see past the shakes and my uncertainty about what I can do? And Carl was great. He never once queried whether I could do the job because of my disability. And bear in mind, I, I'd only had it for just over a year at that point. I genuinely had no clue. I could barely manage it. I was shaking up to twelve hours a day at times. Uh I you know, I I was so tired. I was it I was triggering it so much. It was Oh, all over the place I was, I you know. And he just sort of went, well, you know how to do this stuff, so just get on with it. Never once was it even considered that I couldn't do it. He, de- he didn't even come up in conversation. Um, so I've been incredibly lucky that my first prof, Mark Manny, was just, oh, I've got this mad enthusiastic girl from the UK, <laughs> like, let's give her a project to do. And then Carl just sort of went, "Yeah, of course you can do this stuff. Why wouldn't you? And just get on with it." And again, you know, it's it's that sort of thing of hitting the right supervisors, the right teams at the right time. And yeah, it, because it was so out of the blue, it was tough. I mean, there's there's no ifs and buts. It really does hit you, and you know, it hit the end of my first postdoc fixed term contract so within I think it was less than six months of, of starting to shake I had finished my contract and nobody knew about the Disability Discrimination Act despite it being a couple of years in existence nobody knew about it nobody knew what to do about it nobody even talked about reasonable accommodations with me or anything like that at the time um it, you know, it was just you were on your own, to sort yourself out. And I was incredibly lucky to find a job where I was going, Well, it's a computer, it doesn't care if I'm shaking. So I did that. <laughs> but I didn't regard it as me being a failure. I, I just regarded it as, Oh, you've been dealt a really hard set of cards to deal with at the moment. Take a deep breath and see what we can find in research to do with that. But, yeah, I was lucky. It it literally was my last job interview. I I was running low on funds and and on energy to keep being turned down. Um, And I was so lucky doing that job because, like I say, I was at the very early stages of the Cochrane Collaboration. It was finding its feet. It was learning how to do these more complex reviews literally within – Just over a year, I was apparently an international expert on Cochrane reviewing and Parkinson's disease, which is utterly terrifying and hilarious because, of of course, I was neither. But I was putting together data that was needed to be put together. And I was learning how to do it in a field that was learning how to do it. Mm. And that was just so exciting and so powerful. Cochrane reviews are such a powerful tool. And to be given the privilege of go ahead and write six of them all at once in a brand new area, in a brand new way. Oh, so much fun.
0: <laughs> sounds like it. Sounds like it. I just wanted to pick up on something you mentioned there, because um, well, I had this idea. I want to do some research into failure in the research slash higher education environment and then Obviously, I realize I open this massive can of worms because failure is a very triggering word. Lots of people have different definitions Mm. of it. A lot of people have said I would never use that term. I use bumps in the road. (laughs) Um, I I also think of it in terms of resilience. I know resilience is a very difficult topic at the minute because quite a few people think resilience is the institution passing things back to the individual. So I just wanted to say very and quite a few people who've approached to be interviewed have have come. things you know they've come to talk about disability they've come to talk about accidents they've come to talk about mental health and at first I was very reluctant I was like I don't want people to think I'm badging these things as failures and there is going to be an introductory episode where I make it very clear what I mean by the language and so just to make it clear again here that uh, you coming on and talking so openly about your disability in a podcast with this sort of vague overarching theme these two things aren't related I just wanted to come at this whole topic of difficulty and Mm. And just and, and it's been, you know, the things we've discussed have been so broad with various different people. But I would like to get your opinion as someone who openly talks about disability within life and research, what your views are on when people mention the word failure on failure within research within life, that sort of thing.
1: Well, I mean, in this context, it was just you've been hit by illness. That's not failure. That's life. Um, I tend to start I I supervise a lot of postgraduate students of one kind or another. And I try to remember to have this conversation with all of them at the start of my supervision with them. And I go, look, I've worn those T-shirts. I've dealt with those gremlins. I've had the anxiety and the depression. I'm the sister of a suicide survivor. Um, I know how dangerous the mental health gremlins are And you can see I'm in a wheelchair. I get the physical health gremlins too. You're allowed to be ill. Mm. That's not a problem. What I don't allow them to be is broken. And I say, you're not allowed to break. And everyone gets the distinction between you're allowed to be ill. That just happens. What I won't have is that they then put extra pressure on themselves to mask to cover up to not seek help to not say I'm not coping at the moment I need a break I need help I need assistance with this I need to you know take an extension or whatever it is and I say no 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 you're not allowed to do that you have to talk to me And I huge respect to the students that do, because I know how tough it is to have that first conversation. I've sat in with two of my students with their first conversation with their GB, at their request because it is so hard, because we have these dreadful societal paradigms about you're sick, you failed as though being well was normal. Now being six, normal, we have variable health. That's the normal. It is on a range of levels of health. We are not all fit and healthy all the time. That's utter bollocks. What we are is variable biological beings, and our physical and mental well-being will vary just as much as having a good and bad hair day. And having society label you as even more of a failure because we can't see your illness. We haven't got a cast on that broken leg, but your mind is broken. Well, that must be your fault. So pull your socks up and get on with life. That's where we fail as a society. And we fail as individuals if we back that in any way. And like I say, I tend to have really rather explicit conversations with my students that say, no, 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 you talk to me. I will be that pissed off with you if you do not come and talk to me. And I'm really privileged that a lot of them do. And I, I really regard that as a huge advantage of the visibility of my disability and my personal experience with those gremlins and knowing how dangerous they are that I say, this is really serious. You've got to take it seriously. If you are struggling with this, you must talk to me. Even if it is just to say, I'm struggling, but it's okay. I don't need any help at the moment. I go, that's fine. Tell me again next week and we'll talk again next week. But, you know, I have the most huge respect for my students that have struggled most often with anxiety gremlins, sometimes with the depression gremlins, sometimes with the physical health side of things. But they carried on. You can succeed. You can do stuff even with the gremlins at full pelt and everything. And sometimes, yeah, you have to rest. Sometimes you have to take a bit of a break. You have to get the medical input and stuff. But a lot of the time, Well, like I say, I do the research on the everyday boring management stuff for very good reason. I know how critically important that stuff is. I know how much difference that stuff makes to people's real everyday quality of life. And so, yeah, I try to make sure that I challenge really explicitly that medical model of you have a problem, we have to solve it. And more often explicitly, you have to solve it, hence why we all flinch at the words like resilience and such like. And also that you're labelled as a failure for something over which you had no control. I did not write a letter to God saying, What I really want to have in my life is a weird neurological condition, which means I do not have full control over my body anymore. Never wrote that letter. So why should I be blamed? for being disabled but I'm supposed to apologize for it in fact I now have to be quite careful with my colleagues because they sort of say oh could you just do a lecture and I have to sort of say I would really love to and I really would I love teaching but I have to be really careful because it's a performance and for some reason performances are a high risk activity for me And I run the Russian roulette, and I probably run about a 20% chance of having weeks of really bad energy lack if I do this one hour lecture on something I know back to front. Most of the time, you know, it's a 50 50 chance that it will just be a few days for one hour. I would normally expect a week's worth of being really tired. But I can run the Russian roulette and sometimes it's been up to three months. (laughs) So, but I then say to people, but I don't apologise for that. I say, this is just me. This is just what I can do. That is a thing I can't do. And sometimes I've had to educate managers about the difference between cannot and will not. When I say I cannot do something, I've usually gone through a process where i've done it a few times got the empirical evidence that yes that really does break you Mm -hmm. um tried it one more time anyway yep yep definitely does break you beaten myself up psychically tried to pull my socks up done it again one more time yet it still broke you even worse that time will you stop doing this oh well, right eventually i will put it in the category of i can't do that and i will still feel very guilty every time i say no so when i say cannot i really do mean cannot not i don't i have a preference or anything else it's sort of no i've usually beaten myself up damaged myself and actively done an injury to myself before i'll get to the point of saying yeah no i can't do that <laughs> mm.
0: that um, the the apologizing for things oh yeah issue i I am working on that this year. I mean I don't have I don't think anything in my life that would cause as severe a situation as you've just said, but definitely that the need to just um to to say no or to do yeah. something just without apologizing for it is is a learned skill that constant british really apologizing is. Have it really you, is. Have, have you got any t- I mean obviously you have some the bar is or the consequences are perhaps Greater for you, so I can see that there's that driving factor behind it. But what other? Do you have any other tips for people? How have you learnt to sort of say no? Can I also add, especially as a woman, I'm being thought of. Oh yeah, in that way,
1: yeah. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. We become bitches. We become awkward. We become. Oh, we're we're too loud, too too assertive, too too big. We take up too much space. I I think the main one I do is that I have to remember that every single thing I do takes energy and I have an energy limiting disability and it's even more fun cuz I got a virus just before covid hit it definitely wasn't covid um but I got a virus and ever since then I've had post viral fatigue so I've gone through all of covid with post viral fatigue So I now have probably 10% of the energy I used to have. So I've never been so grateful for a pandemic ever because it's allowed me to do meetings on Zoom and to do interviews like this, lying down and resting and taking a break halfway through the day and not having the energy of travel to do. But the number one thing I do is go, I only have so much energy to do stuff today. Every time I say yes, I'm saying no to a whole host of other things, including looking after my son, including putting that load in the dishwasher, including looking after myself and having a little bit of fun. And all of those are valid tasks. And yeah, they have varying levels of priority, but work is not all always the number one priority my son absolutely gets priority my husband absolutely does get some priority my house has to have some priority so it's a case of going okay working it out for yourself but I think one of the really key things like I say it's every no you say every yes you say you'll say no to a whole host of other things it's not just one thing else that you're saying no to you're actually saying no to a whole host of other things so you can't con yourself that by saying yes that's easier it isn't it still has impact but also because obviously with my very limited energy and the very practical impacts that has on me i have to be really clear about what i'm doing and why i'm doing it. Um, people talk to me and they say you're so enthusiastic about what you're doing and everything and I go yeah I have such privilege because one of the joys of academic work is that I do have a huge amount of choice and power over it to sculpt it to direct it to being the things about which I can have the greatest impact. I love Simon Sinek's work. And he sort of does the power of why and all these sorts of things. Of getting to the, why are you doing what you do? Why is it, what is the thing you really want to impact? Why are you bothering getting up in the morning? And believe me, some mornings I really do ask that question. What the fuck am I getting up for here? And yeah, the disability adds a focus to that. It's no different to anybody else. But the magnifying glass has definitely been applied to that, that criteria. So I work my way through his books. And he, he's got a book that sort of helps you get to your why. And I highly recommend it. And I got to my why. And it's effectively, it's a little mission statement. And my why is I remove barriers to accessing life so people can express their brilliance that's my mission in life and a lot of my barriers that I'm removing are disability barriers but not the only ones definitely not the only ones because so much of what I do has what I call washover effect I put a ramp in yes wheelchair users can now get in that door But so can the delivery man with his trolley. So can the dad with his buggy. So can the, you know, it it just makes such a big difference across the range. And it means that everybody can get in that door. And that is a basic that I go for. And I go, let's just shift the system. So the system allows you to do more. So I really focus on the, what are you doing and does it do that and it's is it a thing that needs my level of expertise my breadth of expertise my specific skill set is it a thing that I will do well because there's various things that have need my skill set but sometimes there's areas that I do really badly I have a very long guilt list of papers that i've still got to write up and things like this I do very badly on writing papers up if i can get somebody else to write the paper i will very happily edit and everything else but writing them i'm dreadful dreadful i get there eventually but i'm so slow on it so I try and get other people to write them as a first draft and then I'll come in and edit them um but yeah it's it's things like so is it a ca- thing that needs a Catherine set of skills? Is it a thing that a Catherine can do well? And is it a thing I genuinely have the time to do now? And then I'll say yes. And that makes it a lot easier to say the no's because you're going, I'm not dumping it on anybody else. Hell, there's dozens of other lecturers in my school that could do that bit of marking, that lecture, that stuff. But there's very few that can shift the accessibility of the entire campus. So I'll do that bit because nobody else is. So that's how I kind of make that decisions. But it is, you know, it's done on a day to day. Hell, it's often done on a moment to moment basis of should I be doing this now? And if you have a limited energy resource, you make those decisions a lot more explicit and of course what you practice you get better at so I'm really good at making hard decisions about what I should be doing today so your project I looked at and went oh it's brilliant exactly what we should be talking about we should be talking about failure because it's often a mislabel in our society labels me as a failure well of course you are you're disabled You don't walk. Of course, you're a failure. And I just turn around and go, uh, I believe you have that word. That word does not mean what you think it does. And it's kind of, no, we've got to shift and we've got to challenge. And that's really important. And that requires a Catherine to say that, because, as you say, you've got a huge variety of voices saying, no, we've got to challenge this. We've got to talk about it. We've got to accept that we are going to get things wrong isn't it brilliant as an experimental scientist to get something wrong? I'm absolutely delighted when I come across research that says, you know that idea you had? Yes, complete bollocks. (laughs) Not a chance it works that way. And I go, oh, isn't that brilliant? Somebody's proven me wrong. And we don't train that well enough. And it is so fabulous to fail. In research and go oh I so got that wrong great now tell me what what am I supposed to do right how else should I be doing what else am I getting wrong I deliberately try to find my failures that's what you should be doing as a scientist is challenging yourself first and foremost your systems your culture your everything else but first and foremost yourself what am I doing wrong myself what am I failing on today and if your failure has had usually the unintended consequence of hurting somebody else then you apologize and move on and promise to do better so it's failure's a critical part of science but we as a society go oh you can't u-turn oh you can't change your mind oh that's utter rubbish as scientists it's absolutely critical that we look at new evidence and go golly we were so wrong this new evidence absolutely proves it let's get on and do something different now i've just been involved in a randomized control trial And it was looking at a specific therapy in my home territory of Parkinson's. And we proved it failed. And it's really interesting because we're at this write-up stage and thankfully somebody else is doing the write-up. Yes! And I'm just doing the editing. Brilliant! And they're apologising for the failure. And I'm going, "Look, look, 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 guys, guys, no, 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 no. We had a fully powered randomized controlled trial. In fact, it was overpowered. We managed to over-recruit. We were so lucky. It just sneaked in before COVID on its recruitment. But we worked in well, the team worked incredibly hard on recruitment. We did a huge amount of consultancy with lay advisors. They told us this is how you recruit the maximum number. They were absolutely right. We the clinicians were brilliant. The, the, the nurses who did the research were absolutely amazing. The Glasgow team were astounding. We had had really robust discussions. We had two primary outcomes because it was a really complex area and it wasn't an area we were going to pin down with just one outcome we had really put in a lot of thought and robust debate and disagreement and compromises and huge amounts of effort and we got really solid results this therapy does not work and they kept they keep trying to write it up with an apology and they're of oh And I'm going, no, 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 write it up as this is the finding of this study. If this was a positive randomised control trial, we'd be going, this therapy works. And I'm going, right, you have to say with exactly the same level of force, this therapy doesn't work. Because it's so important we find the negatives as well as the positives. But that will be regarded by the ref and so on as a three-star paper maximally because Mm. it was a failure by their standards it didn't show a positive result quote unquote it won't influence practice well yes actually it will because it will stop therapists offering something that really doesn't work and it's kind of no guys guys you gotta be just as forceful about the failures they're just as important as the positives just as important and you've got to look at your life that same way yes yeah, some things don't go the way you mean to sometimes you've screwed up sometimes life has screwed up either way you take a deep breath you reevaluate where you are now your current context your current evidence your current situation and then you move forward and that's what you do as a scientist
0: I think you've partly answered what I was going to ask next that that's just oh thank you you've just hit the nail of this whole topic on the head and and, and it's so true everything you've just said and as you were talking about it and I, I could at the beginning when you were saying that you love to fail how fabulous it is to fail and I could just hear the confidence in your voice and what came into my head was how can we encourage this confidence in others and I was thinking things along the lines of as you've said that a negative or a non-result in science is often viewed less favourably. Also, the time scales. I mean, I can see why when you're told, right, you know, annual review, nine months, you know, probationary review, nine months into your PhD, got to get a paper, like the timelines are such, postdoc contract, 18 months, go, Mm -hmm. that that failing is scary. So what do you think, I mean, how have you learnt this confidence and what do you think we can help other people develop the, the desire to fail, or at least the enjoyment of it when it happens?
1: I think, first and foremost, recognise the system isn't set up to allow you to fail. So it's not your fault that there are such negative consequences associated with the inevitable, absolutely unavoidable failures that occur in real experimental science but the system doesn't allow that. So I'm not going to sit here and do the, oh, you just keep trying and work a bit harder and it'll all be fine. And of course, I managed to succeed, so it's fine. Bollocks. It hurts. It sucks. It worries the fuck out of you that you're not going to be able to pay the mortgage in six months' time because you haven't got those results that you needed. But. You do as much as you can where you can and it's that thing about being lucky. You're not actually lucky, you're prepared. Mm. So you acknowledge what is under your locus of control. What are the bits you can do stuff about? So you make damn sure you're good at public speaking, because no matter what you're doing, how you're doing, whatever you're doing, if you can communicate it, well, God, you have got a job. You make damn sure that you network. And I don't mean that by going around at a party and everybody going, oh, what do you do? No, no, no. You go around at a party and you go, what can I do for you? And that's how I've learned how to beat the networking disasters that I used to do. Never knew what to say. Never knew. And I would motor mouth because I get terribly enthusiastic about my research and everything. I now know to go in and go, how can I serve you? And you know what? Obviously, you don't tend to say it that bluntly, but that's what you're saying. And if you go in saying that, God, people will tell you the most amazing projects they're doing. That they just need somebody for six months and you're going, well, you know what? That would keep the mortgage paid for another six months. Yep, I'll do that for six months. Um, That they can get you, uh, you know, a little bit of educational training work. And no, it's not going to pay the mortgage, but it will keep the money coming in. Bloody hell, that'll do. Okay, we'll do that. And that gets you contacts because you're being seen doing the training. And again, you went in and you say, how can I serve you? And people go, well, you know what, I've got this project. And you go, you know what, I could so do that. Or even better, I so have people that I know that can do that. Not even if it's yours. Sometimes it won't be. Of course, most of the time it won't be. But if you can line other people up, they'll remember that. And when they get the money in, they'll go, would you like to join in on this project? And you go, yeah, that would be cool. Because one of the things you really learn is that you work with good people. I have a wonderful book, and it's called The No Arsehole Rule. It's the American spelling of that. But it's actually evidence-based. And there's a subsequent book as well, which is How to Survive Working Under Arseholes, or something like this. And it's worth reading those, because it talks about Bullying it talks about unreasonable expectations it talks about systemic unfair treatment and how that is allowed to occur and unfortunately science research is an absolute textbook example of a bully as you say i've only, i've got to get you know i've got to get past my probation review as a phd within 9 months or they won't let me carry on Uh, Yeah, that's not great. I know why it's there. I know why that's been driven to that point. But we shouldn't be placing it in that. Will they pass this PhD's probation reports point? It is appalling the pressure we put on students around that. It shouldn't be. It should be. Have you done enough in this nine months for us to look at you and go, yeah, you're a credible candidate. You're going to put the effort in. We think you're going to get the concepts you need to get for doing a PhD. So let's go ahead and carry on. It isn't, you should have a brilliant PhD lined up, set up, sorted out, and done within nine months already. No, we should be setting it up far more explicitly as are you at a reasonable point at nine months for you to be a successful doctoral candidate at three years? So that's a very different thing to, are you going to pass? We haven't a clue. Life happens, things happen. Hell, COVID happened to any number of my doctoral students. And yet, you know what? We've still managed to succeed because I focused on the person. I focus on the group. I focus on the people I'm working with. Yeah, I'm doing interesting science. But it doesn't get done without the people. So you learn that if Dr. So and so is a right so and so, no matter how wonderful that piece of cheese he's dangling in front of you is, always say no. And it's really tough to do that. And I have been in that position a number of times. And that you you beat yourself up, and I'm you know I've been in positions where I've gone. Surely I can't be saying no to this inter- job interview. It's such an opportunity, and all the rest of it. But God, I won't fit. I can tell I won't fit. I can tell they're not going in the direction I need to go in. I can tell you know. Oh Lordy, they want me to come in and teach a department with a really strong qualitative um, culture. How to do quantitative research. You have to be bloody joking. No. I would have to work with her. Oh, she bullies. And I, I can't work with that. No, right. No, don't do that. Don't even put yourself near that. The toxicity of placing yourself either in a position where you just really don't fit or in a position where you're working with somebody who's toxic is never, ever worth it. And I really do understand how scary it is to say no to those opportunities. I have been in that position a number of times. I have never once regretted saying no to that. I have so regretted saying yes a few times when I shouldn't have. And I've even said yes a few times when, bluntly, I had the mortgage to pay. And even then, I'm still fairly fussy. It's a pragmatic job. It's a job I'm applying for other jobs for from day one. But it's still got to be good enough for me to spend my effort and my time on. And it's so important that you make those choices carefully as you can. But acknowledging that you're in a system that is pretty toxic about that and never take that system judgment onto your shoulders. That's somebody else's problem. It shouldn't be yours. You're not stupid about this. You acknowledge that the system does that. I hit my metrics. I've been ref submitted ever since I've been a researcher. I've been absolutely pragmatic about that. But you know what? My last ref submission, the largest majority of it was because a friend said to me, I've got a grant to do this bundle of systematic reviews for the World Health Organization would you like to work with me? And I went, I would love to work with you, brackets. And I know your husband is currently dying. And if there is anything I could do to support you and stop that, I would, but I can't. So I can at least say yes on this project. And I absolutely went over and above. I, you know, whatever percentage time was allocated to me on that project didn't matter I was supporting her first and foremost and the only way I could do that was by being a researcher for her in her team and those were the papers that got me referable majorly this time but they weren't the point that wasn't why I was doing them
0: Mm.
1: (laughs) does that help it
0: does Uh, yeah it does and thank you to, for being honest and for mentioning several times why you chose to do things mentioning mortgages and things like that because it's not something that we always discuss and we don't have to go into it further but just to say thank you for setting context to
1: oh what I you've get been talking so about. frustrated with profs that go oh being on a fixed term contract it wasn't that bad I'm going yeah it was it was Deeply stressful. It was horrible. It was made you feel so uncertain. It undermined your confidence. Fixed term contracts are lethal. They're horrible things. I was so grateful when I got my permanent contract with UEA. I, it, the 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 relief that came with that, the confidence that comes with that. How loud I've become because of that. I'm so much louder I was never that quiet but I'm so much louder about stuff because I go right I now have a responsibility to step up and stand up and say something because I have the privilege of being on a permanent contract and no I really try to remember how Bloody awful! A fixed-term contract can be how a tight deadline of you've got to have your results by this time can be how pressuring that can be, and it leads to bad science. I I can't think of any project that I did that was really under the cosh for time and everything else where I could look at it and point at it and go, I'm really proud of the science I did. Then nah, I'm not. I'm proud of the science I took the time with where I bothered to talk to the lay advisors, where I took the step back and go, you know what, are these results showing me something different? You know what, is that dissent here an important point I've got to follow? You know what, I've really got to think about this again. How can I explain this better? Those are my good research projects. The others, they're, they're adequate, they're fine. It's not terrible research. But they were the ones where I worried about, am I going to get the data together? Uh..." And those are the ones where I was really stressed. Stressed brains do not think well. It's neurologically impossible. You actually turn off your grey matter when you're stressed. So it doesn't do do good science. So, yeah, like I say, it's acknowledging when the system is causing you the problem and not blaming yourself for a systemic error but acknowledging that sometimes you have to be pragmatic about it
0: it comes back a bit I think to that that sort of energy reserves the energy bucket that you mentioned Mm. and definitely what you've just said has made me think that when you're in that position yeah you already part of your energy is just taken up in that in the survival the stress the worry and so just reminding people that that's fine and normal and human and Mm. Just to accept that, that they already have limitations applied.
1: Yeah, that good enough, genuinely is good enough. The thing that you have to remind, particularly research scientists, is that you are the 0.1%. You are brilliant. You've already got a doctorate. That means you're in the 1%. You carried on and did research, Right, you're in the 0.1%. You are working amongst people who are often even more brilliant than you, which makes you feel like you're not particularly good. But then you go out and talk to people in the real world and they go, oh, my God, you're doing such complicated things. And you're going, no, I'm just putting stuff in a test tube every single day and trying to get this bloody experiment to work and all the rest of it. But you know what? Universally, everybody, scientists, otherwise everything, the default state of being human is being brilliant. And usually when people aren't being brilliant, it's the system that's failing them and putting too much pressure on them rather than them failing it. And that's why I try to shift the system, removing those barriers to accessing life, because I genuinely pe- believe that people are brilliant and I would love to see them expressing that because that is so much fun. When you can see people doing that, when you can set up those conditions, if you ever get to the level of privilege that I have of being a senior lecturer, where sometimes you can set the project up and say, right, let's go for it. Ah, oh, the joy, the brilliance, the excitement. Oh, so much fun. Yeah, you got to do the boring stuff. Yeah, you got to do the admin. Yeah, you got to do all the all, all, all awkward stuff. But, oh, God, that new result, that bit of insight, that talking it through with colleagues and then going, wow, that's so much fun. That's so cool. That's so important. That's what we should be doing. And you try to get it set up so that you're doing that and that other people are doing that in your teams. And that makes the difference.
0: I have a massive smile on my face <laughs> when you talk about this. It's so uplifting. I just want to come back to something a few moments ago when you were talking about comparison. So being being brilliant or within a within an environment where everyone is is a um, high achiever, right? And I wrote, I thought about this when you were talking about your values a bit before, and I even wrote it down before the interview because I found when I was when I was stalking you online before interviewing you (laughs) I found it in you mentioned your core values in something I read and I think it was an interview and so I think understanding your values and I try and get this across to our PhD students is so important especially when it comes to not just saying no but in terms of comparing yourself to other people and keeping your eyes on your own page and and so is have you always known your values did you how did you come across them
1: no 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 you you develop and they're not fixed as well, by the way. Don't, don't, don't ever think they're fixed. They, they shift over time and you learn stuff and you emphasize different facets of yourself over time and in different contexts and all the rest of it. My three core ones at present are respect, fairness and honesty. So I, And respect is the really core one. That's the one that, for me, really does it for me. That I go, I have to be respectful to myself, and I have to be respectful to others. And how do I do that best? And like I say, I tend to find that fairness, and particularly unfairness, tends to wind me up very fiercely, very rapidly. And honesty is where I hold myself to account, and where I have to say to people, I screwed up there. I I said something it wasn't intentional but I was talking about to some colleagues about my worries about the new variants of concern for the COVID virus and I used the shorthand of the Indian variant and quite rightly one of my colleagues was brave enough to say that made me feel uncomfortable and you're sort of going thwack around the back of the head Catherine When Trump called it the Chinese virus, you knew damn well that that was racist and offensive and insulting and problematic. And then you go ahead and call it the frigging Indian variant. How the hell are you even standing there? Twit. Right. So I wrote an apology. And I wrote an apology in a number of places because I've probably been using that terminology. out of laziness out of white privilege and so yeah being honest sometimes means you place yourself in a place where you go right whack yourself around the back of the head right done it right now what do you do to make that right and you do that and so I apologized and I said I screwed up I'm learning I will do better next time and so my yeah like I say my values are that I respect I really have a deep respect for people. I think people are amazing. People are fascinating. People are so, oh, the things they've done, the things they've gone through, the things they achieved despite all of that. Just astounding. And you've got to respect that. And then the fairness is when I start to go, there's no steps sir that's unfair somebody said that's to somebody and that's rude that's unfair don't like that and then like i say the honesty keeps me keeps me keeps me honest keeps me accountable and no it doesn't come easy yes please read brene brown she is brilliant on this stuff uh her dare to lead is a fantastic book she's a qualitative researcher you can see i love my evidence-based Mm -hmm. research I love my evidence-based personal improvement stuff I've got lots of various books on how you should do things better but so many of them are I did it this way I succeeded so this is the way you do things better the one they're quite interesting and they can be fascinating and they can give you really wonderful insights but the ones that really stick are where somebody's gone I need to go and get more evidence I need people to tell me and Brene went and talked to people about success and about failure and about shame and about all sorts of wonderful things. And her books are brilliant. And again, she brings you back to what are your core values? Why are you doing what you're doing? And my three and my three, your three might be stuff around integrity or um, around um. accountability about you know there's different things that resonate for different people and will resonate differently at different times it's not a fixed beastie over the time that I've had my disability I've shifted so much I was so medical model at the start I wanted to solve me I wanted to cure me nowadays genuinely if you were to offer me a cure I tell you to piss off Not because I don't want to have more energy. Not because I don't want to have the brain fog. Not because getting around in a wheelchair is fun. No, they're buggers. They're a pest. But they teach me far more than they cost me. They give me access to rooms and meetings and places I would never get into on my legs. But my wheels will get me in those rooms. I would never be talking to UKRI if I wasn't disabled. So why would I be wanting to stop that? Why would I want to turn that off? That valuable thing in my life, that valuable aspect of my life is being disabled. It isn't a single faceted thing. It's a rainbow. It has its dark colours as well as its light colours. It has its costs as well as its benefits, but so does everything in life. And this is something I would no longer be without. Its benefits massively outweigh the costs.
0: That's so interesting. Thank <laughs> thank you. I, I'm just trying to think where to start first. First of all, <laughs> I... Um, I am going to make some show notes for every episode. So I'll put all the books and things you've mentioned Mm. in there. Um, I also love that sort of book. And I know many people listening also want to read those sorts of things. One thing that really struck me is, you know, you had those words, you had your values, you had them like right off. And do you think it, because lots of people probably know to some degree their values. They know what feels right and wrong for them. But does, does picking some sort of touchstones, having those specific words, is that something that really helps?
1: Hugely. Hugely, um, you the, like I say. There's massive amounts of different skills and different values and different positive aspects of life that I could label, and I think it really came down to me when I was working with a colleague on, of all things, a, a project called the Values Charter. Uh, we were looking at how do you teach students to act in a professional manner, and My colleague had done her PhD on this and she came up with 19 different, what she described as values and I described as skills because some of them were about having good communication skills. Some of them were being about knowing how to present yourself in a professional manner, in your dress code, in your manner of interacting with patients, in your manner of working with colleagues but it was also about expressing compassion and empathy and respect and having integrity and displaying honesty and stuff so there were values in there but it was it was all mixed together and like I say 19 nobody can remember that she had them in five sections I couldn't even remember that I'm going no the human brain's really simple give it three so Narrowing it down for myself, as well as narrowing it down for my students, allow me to then talk to them and go, look, if you're in a bad situation, if you're in a pinch point and you're thinking, what should I do next? If the only thing you can remember is how would I deal with this challenge respectfully, you are not going to go very far wrong. If you can remember to also deal with it in a fair and honest manner, then you're doing bloody amazing on your professional journey. And that's why I came down to those three, because those were the ways that you worked with other people, patients, colleagues, all the rest of it, and managed to produce a level of care that would be, that I would look at and go, yeah, that that works for me. And I'm going, well, why would you stop that just being in healthcare and how you act as a nurse or a medic or whatever? Why wouldn't you do that in everyday life? And so I do think it helps going through these books and working through their various algorithm, you know, their various tools of helping you think about it so that you have those few simple touchstones remember that your brain is a very simple beastie it can't deal with the long lists it needs some just core simple stuff stuff that you can go back to and go yeah that was respectful that was fair that was honest okay we did okay today and also that you can go "Eh, not so good okay how do i apologize about that in a respectful fair and honest manner so it's It is worth getting it down to simple stuff because we are simple beings. No matter how brilliant and intelligent and genius like we may also be, we is also very simple and our neurology really doesn't cope with long lists and everything else. So give it simple stuff to work with. And I can genuinely say that having those touchstones, being able to say what my mission is, being able to say what my core values is, helps me explain to people why i do the things i do why i do such a wide range of what appears to be an incredibly wide range and diverse set of research because i turn around to people and say no it's not it's all the same stuff and it frustrates the hell out of some of my colleagues i do that but i know it's all the same stuff because the number of times i'm doing project a And I'm using stuff from Project B, C and D in it to inform what I'm doing. So, yes, I do management of long term conditions, but I have never stuck to one bit of that. So I don't just do medication at I do anxiety management. I do depression management. I do dietary management. I do exercise management as well, because I go, well, you've got to look at the whole person and we ain't just a pill bottle pills are important but that's not just how I manage my disability and my conditions but then I go but how do I do that research well if I'm going to do it respectfully I better talk to the people it affects so I do really good PPI patient and public involvement I keep working at it I don't claim to be perfect at it but I do work very hard at it and because I've done that then the pharmaceutical guys come to me and go, we don't do this very well. I go, no, you don't. Can you tell us how we should do it? And so I now work with those guys about doing that. And then people go, well, but you also do this this stuff about access. And I go, yep. And they go, how's that the same stuff? I say, well, um, doesn't help if you say you should go to the gym every day and manage your disability. If that gym's not accessible. So that's why (laughs) I will follow my intuition and say yes to projects that are definitely a bit off left field, but they fit my values and they fit the projects. And it means that when I talk to UKRI, I can turn to them and say, I don't know another Catherine. I come to you with a skill set that is unique and essential to this project you want to shift uk research culture so that it is less toxic less bullying and is by everybody for everybody well that's fine that's great i can help you because i not only have worked for uh, 20 years plus on long term conditions and disabilities so i've done a really wide range of stuff and i've been taught by a really wide range of both therapists and medics and carers and patients And then I come in and I go, so I know all that stuff. I know about the physical accessibility because yeah, going around in a wheelchair tends to you tend to get fairly expert on that fairly quickly. But I'm not just one of your HR people going, oh, you must be a bit more resilient. We must solve you and your problems. And I go, no 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 I've I've transformed an entire university campus. I don't know of anybody else that's done that oh oh well that might help um and then they go and I go oh by the way did you know I'm really good at consulting with people that are impacted by the work that you're going to be doing so I know how to do that and I know a really wide range of methods to do that well and I can come in and go I can help you with that because I've got all of those skills because I dived off and I did silly projects about designing a roadworks ramp And I dived off and I bothered to take the time to talk to lay advisors. And I dived off and I did tons of different long-term conditions and even acute conditions. And I dived off and I really learned the methodologies. And I dived off and I did Delphi surveys and I did priority setting partnerships. And I did weird and wonderful methodologies that do not rank as well in refs and all the rest of it. And I keep doing that. Because that means that I can step up and say, I am now the person who, if I can persuade these guys to be as brave as they really need to be, that in five years time we can start making a really significant difference. That we will be able to point to stuff and go, we made a massive change in a short period of time because we brought in the right people. And Catherine wouldn't let us do anything less. I hope. I really do. It it feels like it's the right time. Um, We've been through such a period of change. The pandemic has massively changed society and will continue to do so for quite a long period of time. There is no normal to get back to. We will be into a new version of society. But also, we've had Me Too. We've had Black Lives Matter. We are basically getting people going, this has gone on for ages. This has been acceptable for ages. It was never acceptable. We're not going to put up with it anymore. We're going to shine a spotlight on it now. And I think disability might be one of the next things up in that agenda to say, this is 20% of the population, at least. It's probably an underestimate. We are doing ourselves a disservice by excluding these people from our research, both in those that participate and those that, con- that actually design and conduct the research. We, the cost, the opportunity cost of that exclusion is so large that we have got huge amounts of unreproducible medical research, massive amounts of very misdirected medical research. Work that was done with the best of intent, but without the patient voice, without the scrutiny of the people that are genuinely impacted by it. They've gone wrong so many times, gone wrong. And I'm not the only voice that's saying this. Ian Chalmers has been saying this forever. So we've got the James Lind Alliance doing priority setting partnerships, identifying the top 10 research priorities as set out by the people impacted by the disease, where researchers are explicitly excluded from the process because they've already had a voice. And now we need to listen to the patients, their carers and the healthcare professionals that look after them. And for them to say the really top number thing we really need to research is, and we look at those things. And it's not perfect, it takes a while to turn the ship around, it takes a while for those shifts to occur, but it's getting there. And I think by shifting the infrastructure, by shifting the structure of the processes and the procedures so there is a bit more flex for variability for diversity, then we will include a greater rainbow of perspectives and that will inevitably unavoidably lead to better research.
0: I'm excited <laughs>
1: Oh, I, uh, believe me, I'm I, the part of me saying about UKRI is I'm going. Please, 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 let me. If I say it enough times, it might happen. <laughs> but to be fair, I'm at a position. I'm at a I'm a, a fork in the road. I either work with them or I work on the outside. I know which one's going to be a bit quieter. <laughs> it will get the work done, but. I can't not do it because I put this together because they bothered to ask me because I'd made a pest of myself enough to the Wellcome Trust and to these you know talked about this people started saying oh maybe we should talk to Catherine about this and I go right I've got a five-year plan for you now I can see that five-year plan oh there's no choice it has to be done now it might take a bit longer if I can't do it from the inside but I do do it from the outside if not There's a number of things that you get taught um, by being in a wheelchair. And one of them is that embarrassment is never lethal. That people looking at you, and they always do, it it actually doesn't, it's, it's, it's inconvenient, it's awkward, it's a challenge. And if it's a bad day, it sucks. But you know what? It's also a huge advantage. I'm terrible at conferences. Does anybody wish to have a question? Yep, I'll have the I'll have the microphone, please. Who wouldn't give the microphone to the lady in the wheelchair? Do you want to speak? I want to speak to that government minister that's only got a few more minutes and he's got to go. Yep, I'd like to speak to you. He's got to speak to me. <laughs> you can always find me. I'm, I'm glad to say that one's starting to shift, but I'm usually the only one in a wheelchair at a conference. So you can always find me. So that makes good. And I, for some reason, my talks tend to stand out a bit. Because I'm the only one on the stage in a wheelchair.
0: I think that's also equal parts your personality. And I can can say that (laughs) um, to you as a compliment and then you don't have to say it for
1: yourself. (laughs) Oh, it's too much fun not to have fun doing this stuff. Like I say, if you are restricted down, and I absolutely am, you know, like I say, you i you know there's loads of things i'd love to do but i have to choose the things i have a huge passion about because those are the only things i can do and then you have a life full of the passionate things god that's so much fun
0: (laughs) this you remind me of um I saw a quote, I saw it at the end of my PhD. So I wish I'd seen it at the start. And now I I (laughs) always mention it at induction. And I think it was a tweet. And it said, it was about academia. And it said, everyone here is intelligent, distinguish yourself by being kind. And I say to the students, you don't have to pick the word kind. But the rest of it is true. You know, pick your own word because everyone here, everyone Mm. here is intelligent. And you do need yeah. to, to do something, you either need to follow your passion or you need to find a niche or you need to pick your word. And that, to me, that sort of sums up what you've been talking about all this time about your values and picking your path is that within an environment where everyone is high achieving and you've you've picked the words on and the path that works for you and you've, you've followed that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, this is it. It's, you know, it, it's, It's far too much. It's far too exciting, the opportunities, the difference that I could make. I have students that have come to UEA because of the work I've done. I know that I have had students come and even consider a university level education because of the access work I did.
0: Yeah, absolutely. If we could start to wrap up the conversation, I think actually there's two things. One thing you've just said there, which is that you've had a direct impact. You've also talked before about the things you've done in the last five years, about getting things done. And we work in an environment where the time from, from research to outcome can be very slow. And so Ooh. and that can be very disheartening and it can be it's just not for everyone. So I think one thing that's of interest is that you said is that you've you obviously clearly are someone that likes impacts and likes to see the change you've made in the world. And so you've and you've managed to carve out a space within the traditional academic environment where you are having impacts on a, on a relatively quick turnaround time scale.
1: Oh, it's ridiculously fast. It's hilarious. <laughs> But I think in part it's so fast because I've been so slow, because I bothered to talk to people, because I took the detours, because I didn't worry about my ref scores, because I didn't worry about the impact factor, because I looked after myself. So I got the speed because I focused on the process not the outcomes and I focused on the value underpinning that and that means that the stuff that you do has the impact.
0: Thank you for a bit earlier in that conversation you well I started off by saying You know, you've done things quickly, and what you did was you were honest about the process, not the outcome. You said those words, and you talked about the fact that you had priorities, and that you were slow at some things, and you made choices. And that's exactly the sort of thing that I was hoping this podcast would do: would be people to share the process, not just the outcome, because that's what we see from other people is we see their conference presentations and we see their publications or their success, whatever that it looks like, and you just see the final project. And so what you did was you shared we're like okay no but there were choices to be made here and that's that's what I want to leave people with I guess is that
1: yeah, I, yeah. CVs are a work of fiction that we create retrospectively and you know how much evidence, how much weight you should give to retrospective <laughs> evidence <laughs> we create a line of progression a purpose to our research programs and all the rest of it. No, we don't. We got that research grant. Hooray, we're going that way. <laughs> we got this collaboration. Hooray, we're going that way. <laughs> it's, it doesn't work linearly. We know research doesn't work in a linear fashion. You go this way. Oh, dead end, back up. Go that way. Oh, great. Wow. Boom that was a big step forward go this way oh this is going to be a slog through slowly hard oh cool stuff that looks interesting shall we go look at it oh on. Well, let's go look at that interesting thing off the off to the side oh wow this is brilliant let's go from research isn't linear cvs are not linear they're work of fiction <laughs> very creative fiction a lot of the time we, we do not Go in a linear manner, even really, you know, fundamental methodologies like doing a systematic review. I always have to remind my students, they're getting frustrated here at defining your question, working out what your inclusion and exclusion criteria, even search strings and everything. I say, this is normal. You should be frustrated. It should be difficult. You should be going back and forth. You should be doubting yourself. That means we're doing it right. If it was easy, it's already been done. Research is tough, and that means you're going to fail. You're going to go down blind alleys. Some stuff is going to take so much longer than you thought it would. Other stuff, it will get done quickly, and you won't even give yourself the credit that it was done really fast. But the outcome in the end... It's worth it. You are making a difference. You're making things change. The increments add up.
0: That's great advice. And um and I need to remember that. And that sounds like the perfect point for me to I'm trying to finish off. I'll give you a chance to add anything else you want to in a minute, but I'm finishing off with sort of two rapid fire um you don't have to be rapid fire with your answers, but two questions that are sort of bits of advice to um, people in general so unless you have anything else you want to to say no yeah.
1: no go go for the okay, question so the
0: first one is if you could I'm not if you could dream big you do dream big so this one will be easy for you <laughs> what is the one change you would make within HE or the academic society to make to make people more um more open about the challenges or failures they face or just to make yeah to make research and he a more open place to discuss these things or enact these things
1: i think it is that thing of saying there is no such thing as success it's it's mere illusion and very transitory even if you do achieve something we are all slogging through the same hard stuff be kind to each other we're all struggling with different things. We never know quite what's going on in the background with somebody. Being decent to each other, being humane about how we do the research, respectful to ourselves as much as to our participants, will have impact on the quality of the outcomes. We should not underestimate. How damaging it is to allow the toxicity to continue. So, when you can, if you can, on the day you can, step up and say something. When you see something that you know is unfair, that you know is wrong, that you know is cruel, if you can, Step up and say something. You'll not do it for every time. That's not what I'm asking. I'm asking to consider doing it a bit more than you do it now. Because it's tough doing that. It's incredibly vulnerable making, it's really hard work to do it, and you're never going to always be in a position that you can do it. Don't that's not what I'm asking for. I am saying if you are in that position where you can be the person that reaches back and helps somebody out of a difficult situation, where you can be the person that offers a cup of coffee and says, let's talk this over and find the next step forward, where you can be the person that says, can I have a word because I saw this interaction that you had with somebody and I'm not sure you're aware of how damaging it looked like it was. If you can be that person that steps up and says, I think we can do better here, shall we try? Then, God, wouldn't we make a difference if we all just challenged ourselves to sometimes step up? But also that we acknowledge that we're just as human as everybody else. And this isn't an every time, all the time thing. This is a when you can if you can and even the smallest thing can make a real difference
0: that's so powerful to remember that it's very difficult when you're wanting to do one th- as an individual to think it's going to make a difference but you've obviously seen over the years with your experience that it can that that one person or multiple one individuals when they start doing things together can make a change so that's nice to remember Mm -hmm. And finally, if you could give early career you, PhD student you, one piece of advice, what would it be?
1: Bravery and intuition should never be ignored. Be brave. Go with the things that your intuition is saying to you. Core. That sounds cool. That sounds interesting. It isn't what I ought to be doing. It's what isn't in my should list golly, that sounds interesting. Do all of those ones. I have never regretted following an intuition. I've never yet regretted doing, saying yes to a project where I'm going, I have no idea what I'm doing here. But I really like the person that, that I'm working with. And it's in an area I have some degree of expertise, I should be able to contribute something useful to this project. But it's completely off tangent. What the hell? Go for it. The go for it instinct is very heavily suppressed by the system. Nah, go for it. I've never regretted the go for it.
0: I'm not even going to dilute that with a response comment. I am just going to say, <laughs> Catherine, it has been an absolute pleasure to to hear all the work you've done, all the work still to do, and your all the advice you've given. Your discussions discussions around values around following what you think is right is just been a treat for me to listen to and I'm sure other people will think the same so thank you very much. That's all for today's episode but remember you can find lots more links and resources over in the show notes at emmaelvidge.com forward slash podcast.